Is that a good day? Yeah. We're like, day two, day four, I don't even know what day of the week it is. Okay. Monday. Monday. That's a good Monday. Um, tomorrow we have uh, some hikes. Who's going on a big hike? Who's going on a big mountain hike? Good luck and God bless. Oh, God. Oh, um, wait, so I met that in a speaker with us. Um, wait, so here we are on, uh, on, on Monday. Hey Tony. Yes. Turn your mic on. It's supposed to be. It says it is. Oh. I think. The red light is on. That usually means stop. Alright. So uh, I don't know how that got Okay, we're good. Alright. I'm not a techie. Um, so hey, here we are. We're we're um, we're looking at obeying your faith. And and so far what we've done is we we've built a foundation, right? We built a foundation and a source. We've talked about what is our foundation that we're building on as we, as we think and talk about obedience. And we've talked about what is our source. What, what is the continual waters that we must go to in order to survive in a, in a desire to be obedient? And what, what was the foundation? Who can tell me what was the foundation? Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Um, it's really one of two answers. And what, what did I talk about last night the source? What was the source? Grace, thank you. Okay, so we, we talked about obedience, um, and we talked about uh, Jesus Christ as a foundation. We talked about um, grace as a source. And, and this morning, or the, this morning, tonight, uh, how I want to start us off actually is I was thinking a lot about how we view obedience and work and effort as Christians, and then how society and how culture at large views obedience. And, and has anybody seen those those posters? Nowadays, you really only see them in, like, dentist offices. Uh, but those posters that have, like, uh, an inspirational word and like, and, like, a really cheesy inspirational saying underneath, like, like, hope. And, like, only when you rely on the power of your dreams can you fly into your future. And there's, like, two, like, two dolphins, like, flying in space. <laughs> so meaningful, you know. It's like, um, and then you really... Things you're like, I don't even know what that really means. Um, I love those, but I think they're really, really funny. Um, but, but a lot of people take them seriously. Um, and something that I found as I was thinking about the series uh, is I found these other posters. They're kind of responses, and this is actually really somebody back there. I know what I'm talking about. These other posters that are a little bit more of a realistic take on the world of effort and diligence and hope and inspiration. And I brought a few of them with me. Um, by the way, tonight we're talking about this. We'll go back to that in a second. Um, here's one, ambition, ambition. The journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. <laughs> it's true. Uh, that is true. But like the other side, the journey of a thousand miles ends in your future. What does that mean? It means nothing. Um, limitations. It's cute. First, it's a cute penguin. Let's just acknowledge it's a cute penguin. Limitations. Until you spread your wings, you have no idea how far you can walk. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? But look, he's going for it. I mean, that's great. Um, I, I love the image on this one. Obstacles. Some things cannot be overcome with determination in the bottom. <laughs> Do not go in there. Uh, I love you. Shall not pass. Um, and then finally, the image of that, this has got to be fake, but I don't care. It's still great. Perseverance. The courage to ignore the obvious wisdom of turning back. I just, that's funny. I'm sorry. I don't know how the story ended. Let's hope they live, but that, that picture is funny. Um, well, I'm going to go back. T- tonight, what we're going to talk about, um, and it's going to be connected to this, is what's a realistic, as Christians, what's a realistic view to, to begin to look at, at what obedience truly is and, and how, what, what, is this, what is this relationship between us and, and, and God's grace uh, and, and Christ and this idea of obedience and, and a realistic view. One of the re- reasons I love those demotivators is they're actually in many ways a very realistic view on, on what achievement is, on what, what effort is, what, what those things are. And you see them on Facebook, too. You see those, like, really inspirational memes that go around on Facebook where you're like, oh, that seems so meaningful. And you read it a second time, and you're like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's a bunch of, like, neat-sounding words um, kind of put together. And, uh, oh, man, this, I got a mic on me somewhere. It's crazy. Um, 
And so th th this is going to feed into our conversation. This is going to feed into our conversation tonight about, about obedience and effort being important, uh, which, it, which it is. We've talked about that. Obedience is a call from Christ. Obey my, those who love me, obey my commandments. Obedience is a call, so, so it's important. So let's, let's, let's say that. But as we looked at grace and we looked at the obedience of Christ and how obedience doesn't earn us salvation, doesn't raise us in the way that we're viewed by God, if we get too carried away, we can't get too carried away with the idea of obedience and, and effort and work, or else we're, we'll overestimate its importance. It is important, but we can't overestimate, or we'll get carried away like those, those cheesy posters that we see in, in our dentist's office. And, and, and we've laid a strong foundation of, of, of Christ and grace. And, and tonight what I want to introduce is, is we, we pursue obedience and think about obedience. Like what does it mean to be obedient as a Christian? What are some of the enemies that, that, are, that are against us in obedience? What are some of the things that, that desperately want to get, desperately want to get in the way? And so from that base, we're going to acknowledge passages tonight. And I'm just going to show a few really quick. We're going to acknowledge passages that, that kind of hit that switch. You guys know what I'm talking about. Those passages where you're like, I want to go home and I want to start working for Jesus. Like, I, I need to be more obedient. What am I doing? I need to get my life in order. Um, that those passages that feed that part of us, uh, and, and we'll, we'll, look at, we'll look at some of those passages. Here's one, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, I mean, look, look at these Ten Commandments. How do all these begin? You shall have, you shall not make, you shall not make. Remember that, honor your, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Now, am I saying this is a bad piece of scripture? No, it is, it is a, a centerpiece of who we are as God's people. Uh, but, but we can read this on its, at the surface and you say, okay, it's a bunch of stuff I got to do. I better start doing that stuff, Right? Here's something else. In John, we've already looked at these. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Later on, it says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and, he, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So we read that, and we're like, I, man, I better start keeping his words. If, it, if I don't, it means I don't love Jesus. And we get, we get caught up in this, i got to do that. Romans 2.13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be Well, man, I better start doing, I better start doing stuff. I can't just, I got to do stuff right now when we leave with this idea of doing. You guys know a lot about the passage using James. James, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Faith apart from works is dead. We hear these things, especially this last one. Faith apart from works is dead. That scares the junk out of us. And you know what word we cling to? Works. Because that's the one that's controllable. That's the one that we can, that we can jump into right away. I, I, well, I can start working right now. I, I know what I can do. Give me a checklist. I'm going to start doing this stuff. But then we look at a passage that we've already looked at a lot so far this week. Ephesians 2, which says what? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The truth is, is that the Lord in his wisdom and his goodness is the author of all of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And so we trust and believe that these passages, the work, if you love me, do, obey. And these passages that say, you're saved not by works, these work in concert with one another. These passages aren't to be separated and focused on individually, but are to be seen in the whole of Scripture and how we work together in this idea of faith and obedience and trust and hope and grace and response. But we like to separate and focus on one thing. We tend to focus on one or another. I wrote this as far as this, this, this block that we hit. At different times in our spiritual reflection, we like to single out... I need to be more obedient. Or we like to single out faith alone, grace alone, which, by the way, is, both are important. And faith alone, grace alone, is, it's always a great starting point. But when you tune every other piece of wisdom out of Scripture and, and tunnel vision focus on one element, it can be very, very dangerous. And when we do this, we separate, we take truths that work in concert together. You know what I, just, I mentioned that a second ago? And when we separate them, and we turn them into something altogether different and dangerous. Tonight we're going to look at two major ones, two enemies. They turn into enemies. Things that are good and true, we separate them, change the definition, and they turn into enemies of obedience. And the first one, well, I'm going to show you that principle right here. It's kind of hard to see because it's in red. 
But we have true, real discipleship up here at the top, right? Discipleship, Christian growth, becoming more Christ-like, which is involved, which involves faith, having faith and trust and obedience. I'm sorry, faith and trust in God's grace for us, and surrendering. Faith is surrendering to God, but also the response to what God has done, obedience. But what we often do as Christians is, for some of us, we take. The faith, and we focus on the, I'm sorry, I'll start with obedience. The obedience, and we focus on the obedience alone. This whole series could have easily been, we're going to focus on obedience all week long, and that would have been dangerous. We could have easily separated it, and it would have created something that we're going to call, we're going to look at tonight, called works righteousness. Or, we could get so caught up and driven by this idea of, yes, grace alone is what saves. Faith, faith in God's grace for us is, is the key, which is, by the way, true. Hear me say that, it's true. But when we separate it from Christ's call to respond to it, we isolate it over here and it becomes an enemy. And we're going to call that cheap grace. And we're going to look at that in a second. Before we dive in, I want to, I want to pray uh, and just ask for the Lord to guide us in wisdom, guide us in clarity, uh, and help us to listen and understand how best to approach these, these enemies uh, and, and begin to look at them in a more healthy and real way. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Your grace. And we also thank you for your call to obedience. Because both are life giving. Both are identity. Both bring about great joy in our lives. I pray tonight that you would convict us for those in this room that tend to, to center more on ourselves creating uh, righteousness. Help, help convict us and make that very clear to us. For those of us that take a more lackadaisical approach to, to our relationship with you and say, grace is great. I can kind of do whatever I want now. Yay, freedom. Help us be convicted about what it means that, no, you've, you've also called us to live and pursue you and obey. Lord, help us to, to end tonight as we began. Let us, let us land on you, Jesus, and have a clarity about what you've called us to. We pray this in your name, Christ. Amen. Um, Two things we're looking at tonight. The two enemies that we're going to say of, of obedience. Works righteousness and cheap grace. Uh, there's others, but those are the two that we're going to focus on. Works righteousness, I'm going to say, is this. When we have taken, but both involve faith, actually. And, and works righteousness, I'm going to say, it involves what I want to call misplaced faith. Works righteousness happens in us when we take faith and, and we misplace it in a place where it truly doesn't belong. It feels like we're being faithful and obedient, but really what we don't know, what we've tricked ourselves into, is that we've misplaced our faith. We're going to look at a story from Luke really quickly uh, about, about an example of that. Can everybody see these words pretty well? Is that okay? Can you see that? God, I heard absolutely nothing in response. Okay, good. That's great. Um, <laughs> So, so Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. We've been looking at parables. This is, parables are ways in which Christ teaches. Uh, and, and here he's going to give a, a parable, a story, about a Pharisee who is a religious leader at the time of Christ, a very important, well-respected by much of the community religious leader. And as we know of the Pharisees, um, oftentimes uh, edged or sided on the way of, of works and obedience as what justified them. Before God. And also a tax collector uh, is the other figure in this parable who was, was oftentimes looked down upon uh, and, and uh, excluded from the community at the time, not looked upon favorably, the tax collector, for obvious reasons, uh, but other reasons as well. The tax collector was not seen as valuable uh, in this society. And Jesus decided to tell a story about two figures here, and, and here's what he says. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Just pause right there. So, so what do we first learn? Who, the point he's trying to get across is aimed at a certain people. And a certain people that are doing what? Trusting in themselves that they are righteous. So the first thing we're going to learn about works righteousness is that it involves believing and trusting that what we do, what we produce, what we create, what, how we actually live is what brings about righteousness in us. And he sees and knows these folks and he tells a story aimed specifically at them. 
And he treated, and these, these people treated others with contempt. And this is a story. Two men, two guys, go up to the temple to pray. The temple is this place of worship uh, at the time of Christ. One was a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. The Pharisee, I'm trying to get out of your way. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you. I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What do you think the, what is the Pharisee doing in this story? What, what, what are his thoughts? What, are, what is his approach to God? Somebody tell me. What, 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 is the, what are the things that are going on in the Pharisee's mind that would bring about that would bring about this statement in a prayer to the Lord. Right here. It seems like he's trying to prove himself. Okay, it's a great way of putting it. Trying to prove himself worthy. I like that word. Finding worth and worthiness in himself. Right here. He's comparing himself to the man next to him, saying, My status is better and I do better things by my outward, so therefore I should be better in God's eyes. Right. And he's thinking about that. I want to cling on to that word comparison. Both men make comparisons. The Pharisee's main comparison is himself and this other person standing next to him. I saw a hand here. Um, I was going to say this, like, kind of like when we were talking about justification earlier, like our resume, like things yeah. that we think that we are good at, um, that, I just said that's trash when we, that we uh, Right. Writing down all the best things that we have. This is what I'm doing right. Look at this. Check this out. Right? What about the... Uh, what about the tax collector? What, what's fueling his prayer? What thoughts? What feelings? What, what, what is his approach to Christ? And how does it differ from the Pharisee? Right here? He's saying how he's like a wretched man. Okay. He's talking about how he's a, he's a wretch. He sees sin in himself. It's very different from the way that the Pharisee is. Right here? He's very meek. Yeah. There's a, there's a meekness. There's a humility to what, to what he's saying right here. When he, when he, it's a great way of putting it. When he is in the presence of the Lord, it is evident to him. It brings almost despair himself, who he knows himself to be, in the presence of God. We'll ask one right here. He's exalting God and not himself, like Pharisee was. Right. He's exalting God and not himself. Both men are making comparisons. You see what the, the Pharisee compared himself to? The guy next to him. You see who, what, who the tax collector compared himself to? The Lord. And when he compared himself to the Lord, what did it do? It drove him down, unable to lift his eyes to heaven, and brought about humility, saying, Have mercy on me, a sinner. What I want to focus on here is both of these men are engaging and interacting with God. Both these men are approaching God with something. They're interacting with God. The Pharisees' focus is this. What, do I, what am I doing and what am I not doing? Look, Lord, I'm doing this, and I'm not doing this. And these things that he thinks are going to bring him worth, like we said down here, that's what he's throwing up into heaven. That's what he's saying. Look at my worth. Look at what I'm doing, and look at what I'm... I'm literally handing you a list of what I'm doing and a list of things that I'm not doing, which makes me more worthy. And in many ways, this comes from a place of his faith was placed where? In himself. This Pharisee's faith, he had a faith, yes, but it was, it was a misplaced faith. It was a place, oh, sorry, it was a faith that was misplaced, not in what it should have been placed in, in the Lord and his work, but it was placed in himself. It's very easy for us to get caught up in this, this circle of when I go to the Lord, I need to have something to give him, to show him, to report to him, a resume to say, look at what I've done. The, fair, the, the tax collector, on the other hand, basically just says, 
I know that I'm broken. I need you because you are the only thing that can produce any worth in me. I can produce nothing. And that literally drives him to this position of I have nothing to give. I don't care if I was the best guy on the planet Earth yesterday. It still drives me to this position. I know that I have nothing to give. What this passage teaches us is obedience for the sake of obedience or obedience for the sake of proving yourself to God is actually no obedience at all. It is a completely unbiblical, wrong, opposite type of obedience. But man, does it make you feel like you're being obedient. Man, does it make you feel good when you get in bed and say, man, here's all the things that I did today, and here's all the things that I didn't do. And look at that guy. That guy did that, that, and that, and he didn't do this, this, and this. Man, I feel very good about myself going to bed and saying my nightly prayers tonight. Oh, by the way, God, I have nightly prayers tonight. Check. And that's such a, it's such a misplaced faith in myself that brings about a, a completely wrong kind of obedience. An obedience that actually is an enemy to us. But it's easier. You know why we do that? We know why we have this, this idea of my works produce my righteousness, works righteousness. You want to know why? It's, it seems easier. It's a default. You want to know why? Because you can control it, or at least you think you can. Every single person in here, I don't care what your personality style is, you, we, we, we love to control things. It's so much easier, to, it seems, to approach God and say, Look at what I've done. Look at what I haven't done. Look at this list that this youth leader gave me to do. And today, look at what I did. I did all of them, God. Isn't that great? I controlled that, is what you're saying. I control my righteousness. I control my obedience. I control who I am before God. And it completely works against any realization that actually, no. Because I'm a sinful human being, because I'm, I'm a devastated, broken person, I have, I have no control over these things. But we default to it. Because we want control of our own righteousness. And we, we try and we try and we work and we work. And it makes us feel good when we lie to ourselves and say, I proved myself for God. I was a better person than this person. I did better not only spiritually, but I did better in school. I was a nicer person. I was more productive today. I was busy. I was a nice person again. That. That is what proved me to God. How can God be mad at me? Look at what I've done. When we can control that, it makes us feel so good inside. And we lie to ourselves and think that it's obedience. It's an enemy to obedience. In 1992, uh, there was a sprinter. Again, if you're not an athlete, it's fine. It's not part of the story here. But there was a sprinter named Derek Redmond. He's one of the best sprinters in the world. He ran the 400, which is, I believe, for you runners, I think, I think the 400 is a one lap around the track, right? Okay. Uh, one lap around the track is a 400. And Derek Redmond uh, ran for, um, he was a Brit, so he, so he ran for England. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that people were saying leading up to this Barcelona Olympics in 92 was, he's the favorite, if not one of the top two or three favorites. The whole country, he was one of the people that, that was for that country, that the whole country got behind and said, this is going to be a potential gold medal. And you guys seen it in the Olympics. We have like these Michael Phelps characters. Like, we all, we, we've never really heard about it. We don't really care about swimming, but man, I love Michael Phelps. You know, and suddenly we're swimming fans. Um, and so we get behind these, these celebrities for a month. Uh, and we elevate them and sell it. And, and this was who Derek Redmond was um, to his country. There was so much anticipation and so much excitement. And he ran multiple events, but the 400 was his event. And, and there was so much tension and, mo- and excitement and momentum going in to this, to this race. And he was well-trained, and everybody knew, he, and he was a confident runner. Uh, and everybody knew he has what it takes to win this gold medal. And this moment came, and, and the country was watching, the world was watching, and Derek Redmond lined up, and he took his mark. And, and, and this is the Olympics. This is the biggest race of his entire life. Everyone is watching and cheering. We are going to have a gold medalist. And so, and so everyone lines up. They get in their starting positions. Uh, and I'm actually going to show you. This is a, a two-minute video. And I'm going to show you what took place in Derek Redmond's race. It's a little bit of a longer video. It's about two minutes. Uh, and and I, I, I will admit, there's a little bit of a cheesy music that's playing a little bit, but uh, it's still, get past that. And, and it's a powerful moment that takes place in this race. And I'm not going to ruin it anymore. I'm just going to let you watch it. So. 
You'll see it. You'll see it. it. The light switches real quick. Can you guys run this, or do I hit this up there? I don't want to hit like the turn everything off button. I think if you just click on the screen, it should work. No. Watch his face right here. That's them crossing the finish line right there. It's a powerful little scene, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that was Derek Redmond's father, uh, who ran out of the stands, saw his, his boy limping, and trying to get across the finish line on his own. Derek Redmond didn't strain. He tore his hamstring. Um, and... And he would not have finished that race, no matter how hard he was trying. Why, why, do, I, why do I share that emotional, that emotional scene and moment? Um, the illustration only goes so far, really, but, but here's why. It's easier, it's seemingly easier for us in our relationship with Christ to discipline ourselves, to train ourselves, to work ourselves, to focus ourselves and discipline ourselves in such a way where we convince ourselves, I can run this race on my own, and I can do this. I can achieve this level of righteousness. I can achieve this level of obedience that makes me this great Christian that I can stand before God and say, look at what I've done. And even as we talked about a couple nights ago, if that happens, if we try that, eventually, it seemed like we're right. I mean, he saw him. He was, he was in a great position to win that race. Eventually, we, we just simply can't. We, just, we can't. We're unable to. And in that moment, in those moments where, where we hit that spot, is when we're the most, uh, it dawns upon us in the most clear way that I need God, not 25%, not 50%, not 90%. I need God's grace and the righteousness of Christ that's offered to me. In the, that is my 100% only chance and hope I have. And any work or training or discipline that I can give means nothing. I must fully depend and rely and trust and surrender myself over to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And this, one of the reasons I love this, this, this scene is, do you see, that's why I pointed it out. 
You see his face when he was trying to get up and hobble. I mean, he was determined. He was set. He wasn't weeping yet. He wasn't crying yet. He was in pain, but he was going to do it. He was going to grit it. He was going to pull himself up, and he was going to do it because he's read those posters that say ambition on it. <laughs> but, but you know who knew that he couldn't finish the race? His father. And his father ran after him, grabbed him, picked him up, and in that moment, Derek Redman realized, I understand now. I can't do this. And he collapsed. He was broken. He was undone. And he saw it. He fell into his father's arms. And all these officiants that wanted to say, you can't do this. Don't try this. His father, at one point, you saw it in his face. It's kind of funny when he does this thing. But at one point, he says, I'm his father. In other words, I am going to carry him, whether he wants me to or you want me to. I am going to carry him. And Jesus Christ on the cross said, I don't care how hard you think you can try to do what I'm doing. I am the one that can carry you. I am the one that can live and die for your sins and bring the righteousness that you could never achieve. And until we know the, only, the, only, the greatest obedience that we can have is to collapse and surrender and be undone in the arms of Jesus, then we don't get a thing about obedience. And he finished the race, and he wouldn't have if his father hadn't said, no, I'm doing this for you. It's not a perfect obedience. I've heard people say, well, it's like I, me and God together finish the cross. No, it's not it. There's no me cooperating with God to achieve righteousness. It's God is my righteousness in Jesus Christ. Works righteousness says no. I can, I can bring some of that righteousness to the table. I, I put it in this way. Works righteousness says I obey God's commandments. Therefore, I'm accepted. That's why a lot of you still are like, Tony, when are you going to give me my list? The gospel calling... Jesus Christ says, you're accepted. That's why you obey. You're already accepted. You're a Christian in this room. You are already accepted and loved more than you could ever dare to dream. And because of that, we can obey. Works righteousness says my motivation for obedience is based on fear and insecurity of going to hell. Fear and insecurity of what God's going to think of me if I keep doing this sin. So I better stop doing that sin or God's going to be upset with me. Gospel calling says my motivation is based on grateful joy for what Jesus Christ has already done for me. Works righteousness says, I obey God in order to get things from God. I obey God in order to get his favor. I obey God in order to get salvation. I obey God in order to be in a better relationship with him. Gospel calling says, I obey God. Sorry, that too should be. I obey God to get to God. I obey God to delight in Him. I already have a relationship with Him. I can't screw that up. I just want to grow closer to Him and delight in Him. And that's why I'm going to obey. The disciples followed Jesus. Why? Not because He said, You better follow me, you're going to go to hell. But He said, Hey, follow me so you can know me and love me and be in relationship with me. That is joy, guys. This is not joy. It's an enemy to joy, and it's an, it's an enemy to real obedience. This feels like obedience, but it's not. I've learned this as I've hung out with some of you. I think a lot of us, we look at Myers-Briggs, I think we have a lot of TJs in this room. For those of you that have Myers-Briggs down, I think we have a lot of folks in this room that are, that are probably wired for obedience a little bit more. A little bit more of a, of a, of a, of a type A personality of, I want to I have things right in my life. I'm not saying all of you are like that. That would be me to me to say. But I sense that we have some folks in this room. And some of you are wired for obedience. You feel worthy. You feel, I love that word worthy we use down here. We feel more worthy when our parents uh, know that we're obedient, when our parents are satisfied with us. We feel more worthy um, when we're obedient to our teachers at school and we know that they, they like us. We feel more worthy when any authority figure approves us and thinks that we're doing a good job. And therefore, the, the performance that we put forward is to get that, uh, get that, um, that's the word I'm looking for, to get that approval, there we go, to get that approval from these people. And so we have these personalities that, that desire obedience because we want these people to approve us. And this carries over to our relationships with God so easily. Is it, is it wrong to say, I want my teacher to like me, I want to do a good job? That's not wrong. 
and we let that carry over to our relationship with God and carry the way that we live for him. This idea that I need to prove myself to God. Sorry, you can't prove yourself to God. The only thing you can do to prove yourself to God is say, I am a sinner saved by grace and the mercy of Christ. What the tax collector said, bring me great mercy, for I am a sinner. It feels so much like obedience to perform. It does, God. It feels like I'm being obedient when I'm performing for God and trying to do the good, right Christian thing. But it's an enemy because your faith is in yourself. What's the second? We're going to look at two enemies. So we've dealt a little bit with works righteousness. What's the second enemy of, of, uh, of obedience? And, and I've called it cheap grace. And other people, of course, have called it cheap grace as well. And, and cheap grace, I'm actually not going to have you read that. I guess I'm going to wait. The idea of cheap grace is this. It's the other side of the coin. Okay, so some of us are driven by this idea of I'm going to perform to get God's approval for me. Some people have claimed that wave the flag of grace so much and say, I get grace so much. I understand God's faithfulness and grace to me so much that it means I'm free from the law. I'm free from having to obey so I can do whatever I want. That story about me growing up as a Christian, I didn't really get the gospel until I saw that video. Um... That, that first few years, th- this is where I was. I was like, great, Jesus saved me. It says that if I just pray a prayer and have faith, then, uh, then I'm going to heaven, so that's all I need to do. Now I can go on living my life however I wish. And, and that's a problem. And Paul knew that was going to be a problem for us. When he knew the power of the gospel, which is, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, hit the ears of humanity. He knew that in 2014, young people in this room, when they heard this word of, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, hit their ears and entered into their their, their sinful minds, he knew, God knew, that what we would turn that into is, grace, I've been saved through faith. I I say I have faith. I've already been saved. Cool, I can kind of live however I want. We call that abusing, the abusing of grace. Paul knew that. And so Paul said these sorts of things. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness? and for, do, are, are you presuming that just because God has this, found this ocean of kindness and mercy and grace and forbearance and patience, not knowing, we've already looked at this, that God's kindness is, is meant, is, is there to produce something, to create something, and is meant to drive you to repentance? Later on in Romans, in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, grace is all the more when when I sin. Well, should I just keep sinning in that case so that grace can be all over the place? By no means. Look at how strong he says that. By no means. How can we who died still live in it? I'm sorry, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You hear what he said there? This, This is a beautiful truth that I hope we get, guys. Is part of the doctrine that we believe, that the, the, the theology we believe, is that we are, are, are in, our, in our beings as, as human beings, we, we are sinful. Yes, saved and called children by grace uh, and faith, but we, we are sinful. We believe that. But, but what Paul just said is that we are no longer identified and owned by that sin. You died to sin in faith. You have died to it. It is not your owner anymore. It is not your identity anymore. How can you still live in it? He's not saying, how can you keep sinning? He's not saying, oh, how, how, why is there still any sin? You should be completely sinless. He's not saying that. He's saying, how can you still live in it? How can you still let it control you? How can you still let it own your life? In grace, by faith, you, are, you died to that way of life. So don't just say, I can keep sinning because of grace. It's not what he's saying. Paul says it later on. Sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law anymore, but you're under grace. In other words, you're not under this thing that says to get to God, you've got to obey this law. You're not under that anymore. Is the law important? Yes. Is obedience important? Yes. But you're not under that for salvation and and approval by God. You are under grace. So what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. In fact, Paul says... This, is, this should drive us to obedience, I'm going to say this, even more than having a list should. These truths, the, the truth of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us, I'm sorry guys, it should be a better, more incredible motivator for obedience than any list that you can draw out for yourself. 
than any book that you read about how to be more obedient as a Christian. Observing and, and, and resting in what Christ has done on the cross for you and true, I remember what I left us with last night, loving grace, understanding grace will drive us to obedience and, and teach us obedience more than any list ever could. Embracing grace is dying to sin. It's a change of lifestyle. Um, if, it, if it's not, then, then, we've, then we've been misled. I talked about how, how works righteousness, this, this idea of a misplaced faith. Cheap grace is, is a misled faith. It's a faith, like I said early on in my faith, I'm a Christian, look at me, I have faith, I have faith, but it's a misled faith. It's a faith that says, I can do whatever I want because Jesus died for me. He loves me. He gave me a free pass to heaven. Yay! It's still, it's still focused on you. It's still living a life for you and not for Christ. And it's a misled obedience. Just like works righteousness is a misplaced obedience. A misplaced faith, I should say. Uh, cheap grace is a misled, a misled faith. Why is that? Why is that? Why, why if we truly, and I want you guys to get this. If you're zoning out, I want you to get this. I need to get this. If, if we truly believe in this grace that we're talking about, like Paul says, it must, I'm going to use the word must, it must, it must bring out obedience. It must bring, we have this, all these images in John 15 where Jesus talks about the idea of, of a bearing fruit, right? We, it must bear fruit. If we understand what Christ did on the cross for us and, and believe and we embrace this grace and faith, it must produce an obedience with us. And, 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 here's, and here's why I say that. Because the grace that is offered to us is what is called a costly, a costly grace, not a cheap grace. Now, why do I say that? While, the, while grace is freely offered, in other words, it's offered to you without money, without price, you don't have to give anything to receive this grace. All Christ asks for is have faith Believe in me. Which is, by the way, we already covered this. We know that it is his grace that even allows us and enables us to do that. The cost for this grace was not cheap. The cost for this grace was very great. Because this grace came by the way of what? An absolute, brutal, and bloody beating and sacrifice at the hands of those that he made. Grace is offered to us only in the cross. The way that, that the grace comes to us is by the way of the cross. And if we know the cross and we understand and we see the cross, we know that was not that did not come cheap. That was not easy. That was not something that, that didn't take much. That took everything from the God of the universe. Grace is offered to us as a costly grace. It cost God the, the giving up and sacrifice of his very own son. It took, it cost Christ what it meant to obey, to live in the flesh of a human body on a human, in a human world that he created. It, it cost him humbling himself to, to, to be 100% man and 100% God in this world. It cost him surrendering himself freely over to those that he made knowing what was going to happen. It cost Christ a beating. It cost Christ lashes within a very inch of his death. It, it cost Christ his very own blood and his very own life. It cost Christ looking upon his father and seeing his father's face turned away and feeling the wrath of his father that we deserved. It cost Christ the burden of carrying every sin ever done in all of eternity upon his very back and it being poured upon him along with the wrath of his father. It's a costly grace. And when we think about it in that perspective, when you put that up against the individual, the person like me and like us so often that says, Thanks for your grace, Jesus. That's so neat. I'm so glad I'm going to be in heaven with you one day. Thanks for letting me live however the heck I want. 
suddenly we realize why that's called the, the terrible, unthinkable abuse of grace. The grace of Christ was a costly grace. And a costly grace, hear this, a costly grace demands a response. A cheap grace, when we develop it in our own minds, doesn't require a response. That's why we don't respond to it. If we don't see a lack of response and obedience in our lives, it might be a sign that I don't see grace as a cost. I see it as a cheap thing. Uh, some of you may know who this man is. This is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote many wonderful things. Probably the most known is a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about this idea of cheap grace. And before you read what's behind me, I want to talk a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, he grew up right in the throes of, of World War II. Uh, and, he, and he grew up in this in his 20s especially, in this, this rising of Nazi Germany. He was a German man. Uh, he just kind of looks like a stud. Um, and he was a great theologian. He was a wise, smart, educated, amazing leader, pastor, theologian. Uh, and, and he wrote many wonderful, formative things for us, is what we know about God. But another thing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, is that he hated, he hated what was happening to his government in Germany. He hated the evil that was present in Nazi Germany. And I'm not a Bonhoeffer scholar, so if you are, and I screw something up, you can you know, yell at me later. But um, from the, the simple thing that I do know about Bonhoeffer is that he hated the evil that was present in, in Germany so much that he dedicated himself in two different spheres, religiously rising up the church to not, to not shrink in the face of what Nazi Germany was doing, which was the extermination of Jews, but he led a voice for the church in Germany to rise up and say, no, this cannot happen. Which, by the way, at the time, that, that culture was, was an co incredibly courageous thing to do, is to rise up in the face of Nazi Germany and say, no, you can't do this. That's what the church is that, that he, led, he led to do, to stand up in the face of this evil. And not only that, but politically. And I'm not going to sit here and, and weigh in on whether this was right or wrong. But he believed that the, 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 what was happening in Nazi Germany was so evil, he committed himself to getting involved politically and, and governmentally in being a spy for Germany uh, and, and was involved in plans to try to attempt to assassinate Hitler, to bring down the leader that was bringing this, this evil. And, and why did he do that? Well, he believed that there was an obedience that, that he, he was called to, that he must respond to what was happening. It would have been easy for him to shrink back and say, cool, well, I'll, guess, I'll just bunker up and wait and kind of do what I'm doing until Jesus comes back. But he was driven and encouraged to a response because he knew why. He knew that the grace that was offered to him was so costly he could not abuse that grace. He must respond to it even in the worst and most difficult circumstance. And this is the way that he puts this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, without church discipline, communion, without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. The word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. He just said here, essentially, what we're talking about. This idea of abusing grace, cheap grace, is actually more of an enemy in danger than what we just talked about in works righteousness. He's saying that trusting and believing and, 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 and following cheap grace, being obedient to cheap grace, is actually being obedient to a grace that is minus the cross and minus Jesus Christ. And one of my questions for us tonight is really similar to the question that we asked last night is, do you know and understand what grace is? And do you love, do you treasure, do you feel the reality of what that grace was on the cross? And does it drive you to say, I don't feel like I have I have to respond. I feel like I, I want to respond. I must respond out of a, out of a, of a, of a clear consciousness of just simply wanting to, to respond to this great grace in my life. I desire to respond. One of the ways in which we, we see this played out in our lives is, is submitting some things to our lives or saying, okay, I'm going to be obedient this way, but this thing, I'm not going to be obedient. 
Jesus is, the, the grace offered me is good enough to turn this thing around in my life, but these things over here, I'm just going to claim, hey, I can be free in the gospel and free in grace and keep doing these things because Jesus' grace saves me and I, and I had the freedom to, 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 to look at, at right and wrong and choose for myself. And that, that gets us in trouble. That gets us in deep, deep trouble. And we do this in entertainment and movies and music and TV. There's some things we're like, okay, because of what Christ has done on the cross for me, I have to start living this way. Okay, I'll submit these things to him and start obeying. But these things, as as a Christian, I'm going to start saying, because we've heard this term before, I have freedom in the gospel. Which, by the way, that's that's a true and real term. Don't see the quotation marks as me undermining that term. It's a real term. And it's a real, it's a real important term to what we are. Because of what Christ has done, we are free from the condemnation of the law, and we are free to live uh, on the law that is written on our hearts after Christ. We are free to say, I am not identified by what I do, but I am identified by what Christ has done. But sometimes we take that and say, because of that, because I'm not identified by what I do, I can kind of take certain things and find license in them to say, oh, I can watch and do this and submit myself to this thing, because I can be free in the gospel. I can, I can do this, and I can, I can have this thing, and I can play this, sit on this, this, this line, okay, and say, this might be bad, but I can discern these things because I'm free in the gospel. Which, by the way, there is a reality to that. But when we're always claiming I'm free in the gospel, it oftentimes turns itself into, I can subject myself to whatever the heck I want as long as I'm entertained by it, and I can just kind of put the quotations of, I'm free in the gospel by watching this. And unfortunately, when somebody actually steps forward and says, no, I don't think we should be subjecting ourselves to this, you know what those, those folks, by all of us, we do this, you know what we can cry out? Oh, you're a legalist. You're being moralistic. Oh, you, you, you don't want to watch this show with me? Get away from me. You're being a legalistic person. And you know why we say that? Because we want to protect ourselves from being able to say, I want to be able to do whatever I want and claim the freedom of the gospel over it. And anybody who says no or tries to convict me about this thing, I'm just going to call them a legalist. Let me get something really straight about legalism here. Legalism is saying that what I do and what I don't do and what I decide to take in and view and what I decide to not take in and view, that is what saves me. That is what makes me approved in the mind of God. So if we say no to certain things and say yes to certain things, if we say no to certain television shows or movie and music, and we do it with the thinking of God's going to be more happy with me and I have more chance of being saved if I do those things, yes, that is legalism. But if we say, I want to say no to certain things simply because I feel like Christ has called me to purity and holiness and after a Christ-like character, that isn't legalism, folks. That's godliness. And that's wanting to be driven by godliness. So, for example, when I say, you know what? No, I don't really want to watch Game of Thrones. Uh, that's not legalism. That's me saying, I desire for myself, right? I desire to, to, to seize things that are holy and pure. And there's things in that show that, that I just simply can't say that I can watch that with a clear conscience. Now, I'm not saying if you watch Game of Thrones, you're an evil sinner. I'm not saying that. Um, but, but so often when you hear people in Christian communities say things like that, uh, oh, I'm, I'm not going to watch neighbors. I'm not going to watch the hangover. You're a legalist. Don't you know you're free in the gospel? No, I actually just want to respond to the call of being, to being Christ-like. I don't want to inject myself with things that are completely unredeemable and completely filth. Sorry, I don't want to do that. Christ hasn't called me to But because we have this, this, this temptation to, to abuse grace and say, oh no, you're freeing the gospel of everything, we get labeled as legalists. Now, there is such a thing as legalism. We just talked about that. But guys, let me just tell you right now, and especially in the high school world, the young world, it's okay to say no to certain things. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say, take certain music that your friends are listening, even your Christian friends, and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to buy that CD. I like the beat, sounds cool, whatever. Everyone's listening to it, so I guess it's okay. Well, wait, no. Christ might be calling me to not listen to that song. It's 100% about sex and hooking up all the time. When we, when we take things in, do we have any kind of view to our lives of the grace that Christ has offered me is a costly grace, and that, that same Christ who offers me that costly grace has called me to live and pursue holiness and purity and godliness and goodness and Christ-likeness. Works righteousness. And the, and, the, the, and the idea of cheap grace can, can disrupt the way that we view our relationships with Christ and disrupt any understanding that we have of grace. Here's my questions. We're almost done. How is your faith tonight? If you were to write down like 
let's look at questions. Here might be a couple of them. We looked at works righteousness as, a, as misplaced faith. How is your faith misplaced right now? Another way of putting that, how, how do you have faith in yourself and your relationship with God right now? What things about your life are you counting on um, that you're trusting in, that you're having faith in, in your relationship with Christ right now for yourself? In other words, what are the things about you that you're doing that other people aren't doing? Maybe that you're saying, hey, look at me, God. Look at how advanced I am. You probably are even doing it in this camp for some of you. Saying, oh, look, at, look at me. I'm, I'm further along than that guy. But man, if, man, if God were to pick out a couple of like, real leaders in this camp, I'd probably be one of them. Uh, what are the ways in which you have faith in yourself right now as you approach and come to God? A misplaced faith in yourself. Second question is more related to this idea of cheap grace. How is your faith misled? How, how have you basically said, it doesn't, it's not that big of a deal that I'm really doing it. it. It doesn't really matter that I do that. It doesn't really matter that I'm really, really into this thing over here or do that. Or, uh, you know, me and my girlfriend's relationship has gone to this level, but it's, it hasn't gone to that level, so it, it's okay. Christ died for that. It's fine. It's okay. Christ died for me watching this show right now, so it's, it's okay. What are the ways in which you have a severely misled faith? thinking about what, what you were doing. How have you said, this thing in my life, it, it's not that big of a deal, it doesn't matter. I can just say I'm free in the gospel and Christ has died for this thing. I'm going to end with this. Um, we, think, we think of the Old Testament. We look at a lot of New Testament this week so far, guys. We look at the Old Testament. Uh, we think of it as this part of Scripture, this separate part of Scripture, right? Um, it, it's not. Uh, it, it's the scripture, scripture is one big, wonderful, beautiful story about Jesus. So get that straight for sure. Um, but when we look at the Old Testament, we're tempted to think it's this, this is part of the world, or this is part of, of God's story where people got to know God through doing stuff. The Ten Commandments, that's the Old Testament. We had, we had people had to do stuff. People had to obey God in order to get to in the Old Testament. So that was allowed back then. Um, there was a man named Abraham. Many of you know about Abraham. In the book of Hebrews, uh, they talk about Abraham. They talk about lots of people in Hebrews 11. I'm going to single out Abraham. And when it talks about Abraham, and by the way, it is one of the, the, the first, if not the first, real uh, kind of biblical figures um, that we see a lot of, uh, in many ways, some, some Christ-likeness come out. I'm not, I'm not trying to make him a Christ character in the Bible. I'm not doing that. There are many wrong things, many sin that we see Abraham have. But we also saw um, Abraham follow God in very courageous ways as well. And in Hebrews 11, it speaks about Abraham this way. Abraham's this amazing person in the Bible. Hebrews 11 describes Abraham this way. By faith, Abraham obeyed. I wanted to, I could stop right there, pray, drop the mic, and walk away. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Our God is the same God yesterday, today, now, and forever. And the same God, the same wonderful God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of our spiritual forefathers, when we approach him to obey, we approach him with faith. When we approach him to to, to to courageously respond. He went out into an unknown land. When we we desire to leave a camp like this and go out and live differently, live and respond to a calling, you know how we do it? We do it by faith. And Abraham obeyed. We don't approach it by works. Abraham obeyed. We don't do it by trusting that everything's going to be fine. I can live however I want. I obey. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Isaac obeyed. By faith, Jacob obeyed. By faith, Moses obeyed. By faith, David obeyed. By faith, we today don't approach God out of look at what I've done or thanks God, see you later when I go to heaven. But we do as the tax collector in the parable. We by faith kneel down and say, I trust and I believe and I have faith in your wonderful, abundant mercy for me, a sinner. And that 
for going back with our race analogy, that is the starting block of obedience. That is the beginning place. We've created the foundation of Christ. We know our source here in grace. And now we, we, we kneel down to begin by faith and trust and hope and dependence upon his work for us that we obey. Where, where is your obedience? Where is your faith tonight misplaced? And where is your faith tonight potentially misled? Small group leaders, you can go where you want tonight, but I would love for us to talk about how, what, what, what things in your life are demonstrating or showing that maybe right now my faith has, has been misplaced. Maybe my faith has been misled. I, I'm not saying maybe I don't have faith. Maybe I'm not saying faith Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what ways am I tempted to misplace or have a misled faith? And think about these two enemies that we've talked about. There's an enemy that you can see creeping in your life. What, what might it be? And where are you tempted in that way? Let's pray. We'll close. Jesus, we thank you for... Um, we thank you for your costly costly, unthinkable, we can't even imagine sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. Yet over and over and over again, we try to do something and surrender it up as if it's going to change something. And Lord, humble us as the tax collector, humble us so that we may begin from a place of have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for your grace that is costly. Thank you for your death and resurrection that shows that you reign over us. And help us tonight to remember and see in a way of hope where faith can oftentimes become misplaced or misled. And help us to trust and put that faith in obedience in you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.